leads quite nicely into the topic of ecosystems that we want to discuss. So since you work quite closely with many large companies um, through the Blockchain Center of Excellence, I guess one of the first things you do with them when you're looking to unlock value is just discuss how the ecosystems look like. And I guess within the ecosystems, what the different roles are, what the different governance mechanisms are. And the reason why I would like you to maybe talk a bit more about how you approach ecosystems is that for a technology like self-sovereign identity to have all, all its value and or achieve all its promise, it needs to be working in a collaborative environment or an ecosystem. So would, would you mind talking a bit about how you approach ecosystem design with the various companies or folks that you're in conversations with? Sure, no, absolutely. So at the Blockchain Center of Excellence, we've looked at eight different ways to kind of organize an ecosystem. And I'll just really talk about two of the most common ones. So the question people ask, or it's kind of two parts along the journey. One is who and how do you create a minimal viable ecosystem to develop a minimal viable product. And then once you do that and you put it into production, how do you scale that? How do you get a critical mass of adoption um, for network effects? So the two most uh, common models we find is a founder-led model and a consortia-led model. And a lot of people like to criticize the founder-led models because they say, oh, it's too centralized, but that's not what we're finding at all. What we're really finding is if you have a founder that is a neutral person in the ecosystem, so they're not in direct competition with some of the key players you're trying, trying to attach, that it's really one of the fastest to market um, governance models. You have somebody with clear accountability of control. You have somebody driving results. You have somebody that serves as a legal entity. And so we have lots of examples now of uh, good founder-led models that have gone into production. And the big caveat is as long as that founder is perceived as a neutral facilitator or what we sometimes call a benevolent dictator. And then the other model is the consortia-led model. And that's really a good, strong model if you're doing, trying to do things like to develop standards or if you're trying to do things like um, develop proof of concepts inside sandboxes. However, consortia are a nightmare if you're trying to launch a live product. You need a legal entity. You want uh, kind of one standard um, software licensing agreement. So typically what you want to see a consortia do is pivot to a spinoff or a joint venture when they're moving from the sandbox into production. And um, I'll pause there in case you have any follow-ups or if any of the other panelists want to jump in. Thank you, Mary. Yeah, maybe Jim, I, I would throw it over to you. I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that and how kind of Veritex plays into the whole aerospace ecosystem. And the aerospace and defense ecosystem is quite complex and there's all sorts of different organizations in there, right? Some are just massive, massive organizations, but they're also working with much smaller ones when you could start talking about 3D printers or other manufacturers. So how, how do the dynamics work inside of there and how do you work through that? Sure, I mean, that, that's, that's fundamentally uh, the crux of this conversation as we kind of work outward in concentric circles. I first want to acknowledge uh, Mary's comments. Uh, Mary's probably one of the smartest people I've met. Uh, and I'm going to brag on her just for a second before I answer the question. But she's she's written probably probably up to 30 books by now, Mary. But uh, she's got some very, very good books. Uh, um, she's on her second, I think, on blockchain. But if you haven't picked one up, please do so. Um, because you're going to learn a lot as she un unwraps and unpacks these use cases. And one of them is the Veritex use case. But to what she said before, it's very difficult to start 
um, large corporation and work your way out. And I'm going to highlight a little bit, but let me walk backwards just to another point she made, which was really around um, founder-led or um, consortia-led uh, um, projects. Th there's a bias that comes, um, whether intentional or not, when you have a large corporation. You have whatever um, your corporation is about. So let's say it's Honeywell and GE. Honeywell and GE are competitors. They're also suppliers to each other and so on. However, I don't think Honeywell would be very comfortable giving their IP to GE nor GE to Honeywell. So you have to create an environment, especially in the digital um, world that we're going to work in, in this industry 4.0, that allows people to be comfortable. So that neutral space um, is very, very important. Um, and I'll go back to the, to the Moog story. So we developed this technology, and it was called Veripart inside of Moog. And uh, Moog is a great company, very innovative. And what we found, though, it was very hard for Moog, the big battleship, to kind of steer towards this blockchain solution because it wasn't part of their core business. And it's very difficult to start a company within a company because um, every day you're, you're, you're putting out fires regardless of where you are in that company. And those fires of the day seem to um, always take all the personnel um, that you would want in the innovative side and, and putting them in the operational side to, to solve these problems. So it's very difficult to get things moving and then to really keep uh, any type of momentum you have because there's always something coming up. So ideally you want to come outside of the company. A lot of large companies have their own innovative space. Um, JetBlue's got innovative space, Lockheed, Boeing, and so on. So they can be outside. Now for the consortia part. Um, whether it's founder-based or consortia-based startup, the thing that's most important is it's got to be governance first. I mean, what we found with some of the early blockchain examples with IBM, whether it's TradeLens or Food Trust, was uh, when the governance model wasn't very solid, they didn't have a lot of participation. Um, but they went back, they figured it out, got the governance online, and then all of a sudden these things took off. The other thing to consider when you're looking at these consortia or founder base is where you are in the value chain. And a perfect example is a, another Arkansas company, Walmart. Walmart said, hey, look, we have all these recalls for leafy lettuce. We're endangering uh, you know, our customers with food safety issues. Um, we're going to put it on blockchain. So they go out to the lettuce growers and say, hey, if you want to participate and sell lettuce at Walmart, you have to be on our blockchain by September, it was September 19th. So you have to be on our blockchain by September 19th. What that allows them to do is this rapid forensics in the event that uh, you know, there is, a, there is a, an outbreak or a recall of food. Um, so they can do that. Now put yourself on the other end of the value chain of the farmer. Let's say Kroger or Aldi came to them and said, hey, to sell at Kroger or Aldi, you have to be on our blockchain. Or let's say that the uh, guys who sell them fertilizer said, hey, in order to buy my fertilizer, you have to be on my blockchain. So all of a sudden you have all these unfunded mandates that are pushed down to the level that's less likely to be able to afford and implement, which is the grower. You're asking them um, you know, to participate. You know, this, is a, this is a requirement. Um, so it, it's important um, as we do this to understand where we are in the value chain. So if you're in the right place of the value chain, you can take bias out or you can put bias in. If you're in the right place of the value chain, you can um, you know, be a, uh, a start for governance and good governance. I would say that, um, to Mary's point, you must start with a status quo before you even start with governance. So before you even bring on one partner, it's, it's imperative that you start with a status quo so that you're only making changes. Um, so that's a little bit kind of walking around the issue, but it is difficult. We did come out, Veritex came outside of Moog in order to create a neutral environment um, I will say that we are uh, founder-led, 
but we will be consortia-based, which is this hybrid model, because aerospace is a consortium of about 15,000 aerospace suppliers. Um, but the reason to do it like that is to, one, establish um, to, as a founder base, to establish status quo that will then be driven to the governance model that the consortia will then um, participate in. I'll pause there. Thanks, Jim. That, that was fantastic. Um, what, what I would like to get to now is just move through the SSI model. And for folks that are quite familiar with SSI or have seen our presentations before, we've spoken about this model before, but I just want to go through it quickly because I want to tie it back into these B2B uh, use cases or scenarios that uh, we're talking about today. So self-sovereign identity enables this new model called the verifiable credential model or the verifiable credential trust triangle, which makes data or credential exchange possible in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion without necessarily having an identity service provider facilitating that transaction. So no matter what type of credential you're exchanging, the triangle involves the same three parties. So there's always the issuers who are the source of credentials. So every credential has an issuer. It has to come from someone. And most, I guess in B2B, you could think about various issuers being government agencies, standard bodies, financial institutions, and so forth. They issue verifiable credentials to a holder. So holders request credentials from them, and then they hold them in their wallet, a digital wallet. And they present them when they need to be presented when there's a verification happening from a verifier. So the verifier being the third kind of actor in this triangle. So a verifier is anyone really that's seeking trust assurance of some kind about the holder of a credential and the verifiers request credentials and they follow their own policies to verify the authenticity and the validity of those credentials. So a, a lot of people tend to go to B2C use cases for um, self-sovereign identity. So a lot of times we, we think about just an individual holding a driver's license or a passport or something like that inside of their digital SSI wallet. But there's tons of B2B use cases as well where making use of self-sovereign identity and verifiable credentials makes sense. So I wanna just go through a quick example and then I'll throw it back over to Subhashis for a little more of a deeper explanation of the benefits of this uh, being implemented in something like Veritex or similar B2B use cases. So in, in this example, we have an issuer, which would be uh, the US Air Force. And we have issuers here because there could actually be multiple issuers within the Air Force. So within the US Air Force, you could have an HR department, for example, that would issue a credential of a new employee or a new contractor. And here, this is what we're looking at, is that the Air Force has multiple issuers internal that are issuing credentials to a contractor that's being hired to, to do some maintenance work on an airplane. Um, you could think about a chief identity, um, a, a security officer, for example, could issue credentials on uh, access to physical or uh, digital assets, for example, as well, right? So all, all these groups would be using an infrastructure that's powered by self-sovereign identity. So the verifiable credentials are issued and signed by the issuers within the Air Force. And then once the contractor in this case has the different credentials in their wallet, they're able to use these as proofs to perform certain tasks. This is all powered by a blockchain. No. 
So um, some blockchains are made specific to this use case. Some are general blockchains. Some people use other methods, but a blockchain is used to really guarantee here who issued which piece of information to the holder, if the information was actually issued to the holder themselves, if the information was altered or changed by the holder, and if the information is still valid upon receipt here.